Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Options Happy Hour Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry is stuck on a project. She was going to be here, and we were going to talk about stress and migraines. And we're going to do something kind of like that. We're going to definitely talk about stress in the uh, by the author of Bouncing Back 2017 in Crisis, Ronald Mann. I'm back in the archives, and this is a great show talking about those very issues, just from a different perspective, but it is about dealing with stress, physical or mental or otherwise, and we certainly have enough of that. Maybe it's just me. Um, So this is a really great show with Ronald, and uh, we will be back on Sunday, and I'll be, I'm here, so if you have any questions in the chat, feel free to type them in, and I don't have any announcements. I know that's shocking. Uh, And we will get going. Here we go. Dr. Ron Mann obtained a master's degree in educational psychology from the University of California, Santa Barbara, in 1971, and a doctor of philosophy from the California School of Professional Psychology, Los Angeles, in 1974. He He obtained postgraduate training in executive coaching and organization development from the William James Institute of the Professional School of Psychology. He practiced as a licensed psychologist from 1976 to 2002. He's appeared on Fox Sports Net, Fox Boston 25, Morning News, Good Morning America, and numerous radio shows. Ron's sixth book, Bouncing Back 2017 in Crisis, takes us on a real journey into the lives of top sports figures, past and present as they openly share their stories, as they embarked upon their own chosen paths. Inspirational and very moving, we're invited to look into their souls and feel their passion for what they truly love. This book is about life and change, challenge and triumph, decisions and courage, and now. This moment in time with all of the worldwide tumult humanity is experiencing. Welcome back, Dr. Mann. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I know at first when we... When Jerry got the book, she was like, "This is we're talking about sports," and and at first that was my reaction too, like really. But once you really get into the book, it's really true that the, we can apply these, and that was part of what I was saying with the when I was reading those articles about fracking and the you know what's going on in the administration and all of this. I mean, there there's got to be a step in here for me that can, as I would put it, enhance my calm. I need something to like counterbalance what's happening and and I know I'm not an athlete and I can't even pretend to be one but there are steps in here there's there's a guide you have eight principles and I'm certain one of these principles will help me regain my center point and be calm again after I make those kinds of announcements um I just I just have a feeling about that uh my my first question to you is how did you go from being an in-office therapist to writing Bounce Back into Crisis 2017? Well, it's been a uh, process of evolution, I guess. You know, I've written a bunch of books. I think this is my sixth one. And uh, whatever I write comes from some sense that there's a need that can be addressed to help people either spiritually evolve more or learn how to apply these principles in everyday life so their life would be more focused, they would be calmer, they would be able to stay above the fray and not get sucked into the craziness of anxiety, fear, anger, uh, depression that so many people get caught in. Uh, you know, just listen to your announcements and it wants to take you there, you know. Uh, so being a psychologist, uh, I always did a lot of writing and I did a lot of psychological evaluations, wrote a lot of reports. So writing was not hard for me. It was more of a decision to want to share what I know and writing a book is a good way to do it. So that's how it happened. And the, uh, the evolution of my professional life, and I was uh, trained and practiced as a clinical psychologist for, for many years, and 
healthcare changed over the course of time and it became less desirable to, to be in the business of private practice as a psychologist because of managed care. So I transitioned out of that and got into the business world and did organizational development, executive coaching. And personally, I've always been into athletics. As a kid, I played baseball and I, I was good. I went to the um, World Series in, in baseball, but played it at that level. And as an adult, I uh, picked up golf because uh, it's not a team sport, so it's easier to go out and, and play. And I like being active. And I actually developed a sports psychology practice because I was always out on the golf course. Uh, I was coordinated in athletics. I had skills. I played well. Plus, I had you know, 30, 40 years of background as being a psychologist and a uh, meditator. So I'm calmer, I'm more focused, I'm more concentrated, uh, I recover from breakdown, and I make a bad shot, it doesn't ruin my game. People, typically, they would play with me, and because, you know, as we've talked in other shows about consciousness, there's a field that gets created by your presence, and so people would get into that presence, and they say, you know, I just played the best round of my life. You know, I was more focused, I was calmer, you know, this was great, and I began to get people asking me to help help them. I ended up getting the UCLA women's golf team as, as a client and then a lot of junior golfers. And so I got more involved in writing uh, stuff that brought spirituality into athletics, mostly around golf. And so this book uh, at one point was designed to be a sports psychology book you know, on peak performance. I was curious about, you know, the book was originally called The Magic of Peak Performance, and I had a contract with Harbor Press to publish it, dependent upon the fact I could get six household names because they wanted to sell a lot of books based on name recognition, which is fine. But the people who were currently playing didn't want to share their secret stories. They said, wait till I retire. So I ended up getting a lot of great people, but they were retired. They weren't currently competing. And so Harbor Press said they didn't want to do it. And I spent a few months uh, not knowing what to do with the material and did write a book a number of years ago when the economy crashed. And it was about, you know, how do you deal with the fact you just lost all your money, uh, your life savings and all that. And then uh, with the advent of Trump being elected and the rise in terrorism, uh, the negativity that was going on in this country, the fear that being generated, the uh, animosity. Uh, I thought that there's a, a need to take the material that I had and bring it in to contemporary time. So it's basically a new book. You know, everything is reorganized. There's new content. And it's about exactly what you said, Richard. It's like, how do I live in today's world where, you know, you turn on the TV and depending upon your political affiliation, um, you either go into anxiety and despair or into elation, right? Two ends of some emotional spectrum. People are polarized. Nobody wants to talk to each other. Uh, everybody sees that the other person is um, almost like the, the enemy. And the capacity for civility uh has gone way down, I and mean, people in Congress are trying to get it going. But we have the President of the United States, who uh, is a, a model for some, uh, who shows the most infantile behavior, uh, a great lack of emotional intelligence, uh, and um, I don't see any great spiritual consciousness uh, emanating from uh, President Trump. And so I thought, you know, that there's a, a need, again, to take this material and share it because there are things that we can do. And the subtitle is, you know, how do you prepare for and recover from life's greatest threats? Because it's a mistake to wait uh, until crisis strikes to then learn how to deal with it. I mean, that, that, you're behind the power curve if that's the case. The wise person learns these things, embodies them in their life, 
So when the moment comes that they need them, they're there. I mean, just a personal example, uh, a week and a half ago, I find out that someone stole my identity. I never hear about identity theft. Oh, I'm protected. It's not going to happen to me, right? Well, somebody has my social security number, they have my birth date, and they they have my name, and they attempted to open up uh, four bank accounts or credit cards, PayPal and Discovery and, and a few others. And I'm starting to get the alerts on this stuff. And uh, some people might get really freaked out by that, you know, and have a lot of anxiety and a lot of panic and all that. And because of my spiritual practice, I meditate every day and I have a certain kind of philosophy. So it's not just a meditation, but it's kind of your view of life that holds something bigger and realizes that ultimately things turn out okay. So it was a waste of time. It took four hours of talking to a bunch of uh, credit card uh, reporting agencies and stuff. So I locked down my freeze and all that. And fortunately, nothing got open. But it, it was a four-hour experience. It didn't uh, mess me up for uh, two days, three weeks, you know months, whatever. And so while the, the book uses these stories from athletes, athletes are just in a, uh, a big pressure cooker. I mean, the nature of performance at that professional level is that there's a lot on the line. There's a, a lot of uh, potential anxiety uh, that, that happens. And you can also be under uh, a lot of negative adversity. And I thought these are great stories. And so I used the stories to kind of expand the principles. And the principles are sound, basic principles for success in every aspect of life, you know, whether it's on the athletic field, but more importantly, in every aspect of your normal everyday life, in relationships, in business, uh, uh, even health. We talked, had a little opening about health. I mean, stress is the, the greatest thing that will impair your health. And so if you're always in reaction to what's going on in life around you, whether it's you know, political stuff or just people, relationship stuff, family stuff, you know, your, your health is going to suffer. So the eight principles give you real substantial things that you can learn and ways to change your thinking and your attitude and your self-concepts and engage life in a more effective way. That was a long answer, but there you go. <laughs> that was good. And that makes me <laughs> jump to, uh, now there are eight principles and there's an order to the principles, but because <laughs> I can't help it, I have to jump to number five because that's what you were just referring to. Uh, and that's actually what I was referring to when I was joking about you know, after reading the articles, I need help. Uh, number five is your capacity to rise above your conditioning and societal pressures will unleash your personal power. And to me, when I read that, uh, the first thing that I thought of, because recently we had interviewed uh, Bruce Lipton and he was talking about genetic potentials, that in a certain way, this this does seem to fit into the a factor in the epigenetic potential, meaning your capacity to rise above your conditioning, because a lot of what Lipton talks about is environmental factors, not just chemicals and that, but also emotions and everything else. So you're really talking about, talk to us more about this capacity to rise above our conditioning and the societal pressures. Sure, and I'm glad you picked that one. There's a number that I think are important, and this is clearly one of uh, the more important ones as well. Um, and in the book, there's a story from Doug DeSensei, who is a um, baseball player, uh, well-known for taking over third base from Brooks Robinson. And when he uh, first went out there, as a young kid. First day he's out there, uh, people, Brooks Robinson is like a, a living legend in, in those days for these people. And they loved him. They didn't want to see Doug DeSenti out there. So he goes out on the field, and there's 30,000 people booing him. That's a lot of negative energy, right? And he's trying to perform, right? And his story about how he gets through that game 
with all, you know, the whole crowd turned against him is uh, chilling. I get uh, uh, electricity going through my body every time I even read that story. But what it says, this whole chapter, is about how do you get to a place where your uh, identity in yourself is not programmed and totally influenced by what's going on around you. Paramahansa Yogananda has a great saying that uh, I always use. It's called, it says, environment is stronger than willpower. So what you surround yourself is really important. Carl Jung had a concept called individuation, which you're probably familiar with. That is the, the point of this rise above your societal pressures is that part of growing from childhood into adulthood is that you have to define yourself. You have to introspect and soul search and really answer the question, who am I? What do I believe? What do I feel? What are my values? And what is going to guide me in life? And if you just allow yourself to be pressured by uh, convention that you, you just blend in or you do what you think, you know, is expected of you, uh, you don't really come to the, the pinnacle of your life. And you can't be the, the best that you can be. And I don't think you make the greatest contributions uh, to society if you just allow that to happen. And how can we... I'm pausing because I'm trying to figure out the... So how do we develop that ability to rise above? All right. And let me give you an example with that, too. D- Doug DeSensei is, is the reason why he's like the uh, poster child for this one concept in the book. He was uh, brought up in a uh, Midwestern family, and the family taught him to respect his elders. Right? So he's playing baseball. He's, he's 20, right? Yeah, and he's on... the uh, Baltimore Orioles, and the manager is a very uh, old-school kind of manager. Angry, yells at people, intimidates them, uh, and at one point, he had to stand up to uh, Earl. That's the name of the manager. He had to stand up to Earl because otherwise his career would have been destroyed. And he actually went into therapy long before it was in vogue to have a sports psychologist you know, to work out that issue, and he realized that he was an adult at this point. He had become an elder in his own right, and that he had to stand up for himself in order to give himself the chance to be the best that he could be. So uh, I think there's a couple steps in the process. First is awareness is everything. If you're not aware, uh, it's very hard to make changes and live a conscious life. And that's also one of the principles in emotional intelligence, because you have to be aware of what's going on. So if you're aware of the influences around you and you can identify them, it it helps to begin the process where you can make a choice to separate, and hence the word individuate. You become uh, an individual apart from those because you can make a choice now. There's these values around me. I mean, I see what society says. And if you go to culture to culture, there are different norms in in every culture, whether it's a business culture or whether it's a different country. And so there's a need. I mean, the most obvious, uh, grossest example is Nazi Germany. You know, if you go along with the, the culture, you go one place. And if you start to take a look at that culture and really assess it, you go, you know, is this the kind of culture I want to be in? You start to individuate from that culture and say, no, I'm different. I have different values. These are my values. This is who I am. And then uh, these other principles come to bear too. You know, you believe in yourself and you have a, a strong sense of self. You stay positive. You get your voice, you know, and you begin to speak up to represent who you are. And And I think we're in a similar time. 
you know, with the uh, the current administration, there's a lot of things coming out. It's just in terms of what you said, it's like anti-science. You know, it, is that the kind of uh, culture and values that you and I'm asking our readers or our listeners is that the kind of uh, belief that you want to foster that basically says science is worthless? You know, we're we're not going to make decisions in life about uh, things based on good research, you know, good science that gives us good information, or are we just going to say, well, this is what I believe, and what I believe is fine. It's because what I believe. You know, to me, belief is fine, but uh, belief is belief. It's not necessarily related to consensual reality and facts. And so there's a need to take a look at what's going on in the world and say, you know, does this represent me? Do I support this? And who am I? Am I the same? And if I have different values, different ideas, different beliefs, am I going to do anything about it? And you know, being a, a yogi and a, a strong meditator, uh, for years, you know, I would just say, oh, everything's fine, and I'd do my meditative practice and wouldn't get too involved. But things have gotten so bad that I feel like I have to speak up. You know, people need to get their voice and say something. And this happened years ago when I had a organization called Project for Planetary Peace. I don't know if we talked about this before is that I was involved when Ronald Reagan won the nuke the Russians. And there were some Americans who put together these uh, nonprofit organizations where they did citizen diplomacy and went and took Americans from here, took them over into the Soviet Union and took Soviets, brought them over here and got people together just as a way to dispel this image that people are the enemy. It's hard to nuke somebody if they're not your enemy. And if you actually find out that they're nice. And so there there have been times in my life where I've felt moved to action based on my values. And I think, you know, the only way I can live with myself is if I speak up and somehow engage this. I just can't sit back anymore. And uh, for me, we live in that time now. And that's one of the big reasons why I uh, wrote this particular book and the title. 2017 in crisis because I think we are in a crisis. Mm-hmm. Typically, think we, so things too. always turn out. Yeah, sure. I think so too, and not just with consciousness, but with our health, with our politics. But what, from what I see, the most successful people are the most conscious, the most aware. Well, with the exception of maybe Forrest Gump. But my question <laughs> is, how did we become unconscious? Where did we start turning over all of what we see and perceive and ought to do to other people? Well, that's a great question. And uh, I I think if you're asking for that process in, we can look at it from a couple ways. We can look at it culturally from American culture, and we can look at it just individually uh, as a person growing up, which kind of brings us back to that individuation issue as well, is that let's go with the individual, then we'll go with the culture. If we look at the process of maturity, typically, you know, when we're young, we are taught, and it's a socialization process, that you respect your parents, although there's lots of that these days, and there was a long time ago, but you respect your parents, and, you know, they know something, if you listen to them, and they're going to help you out. They're going to keep you safer, and, and you'll learn something in that process. So you want to defer to them because presumably they know more than you. I mean, that, that's a good parenting model. And then if you continue to uh, grow up but don't make the shift, typically kind of it's beginning in adolescence is, biology is changing and you're moving away from your family, make to a shift to realize that there's a inner wisdom and an inner authority. And hopefully the spiritual practice becomes part of that to where you realize that through intuition, you can get a lot of good information. 
right, to help you wake up. But unless you're trained to learn how to look inward and given some good techniques that will help you um, change your consciousness, change your vibration, elevate yourself into a higher state, then you just kind of go with the flow. Environment is stronger than willpower. If you don't uh, do something to learn to kind of swim upstream, you're just going to get carried with the current. Now, one of the reasons why I like going to India, there's a spiritual vibration in the culture. India's got its issues, you know, but it has you know, 5,000 years of spiritual tradition. And so you're there, you feel it. You don't feel that so much here uh, in the United States, depending upon where you are. You know, and um, people who want to work on their consciousness, they seek out particular places. You know, they listen to your show. They go to uh, groups, whether it's their spiritual group, meditation group, or a particular church that has, you know, a, a great uplifting vibration and a, a strong, you know, spiritual uh, presence there. Uh, they work on themselves to bring themselves up. And when people buy the message, and unfortunately you heard Donald Trump say this, I'm the only one who can help you. Right? I'm the only one that can fix you. And that's a dangerous message because it's basically saying, you know, you can't do anything. I've got all the power. You have to trust me and let me do it. All right. Well, you know, if people buy that message, they are making a choice to stay asleep as opposed to engaging their intellect and engaging more intuitive functions to discriminate and perceive, well, what's really going on here? And uh, part of that process of evolving requires some work. You know, as being on the spiritual path and growing doesn't happen when you're asleep, you know, you have to put out energy. You have to change where you go. You know, you have to be selective on who your friends are. You have to be selective on what you eat, you know, what you drink, and uh, what you watch on TV uh, and the radio, and what uh, what you do with your day. I mean, do you spend any time in kind of a silent contemplative mode that has techniques designed to help you regain an inner sense of peace, which is everybody's natural birthright, nature of the soul. There's peace, calm, love, joy, bliss when you get really, really quiet, but it gets overshadowed by uh, over-identification with everything around us. We get caught up in outer reality, we take it too seriously, and we get caught up in the delusion. You know, we get identified with our body, so if the body doesn't feel good, we go, oh, I'm not so good today. You know, well, the body may not do doing well, but your inner life doesn't have to be as affected just because your body isn't doing so well, or even your thoughts. You know, thoughts come and go. You know, we can choose, if we're conscious, to go on the ride and let ourselves be defined, controlled, and moved along by those thoughts, or we can just say, well, it's a thought. You know, people are so identified with their thoughts, they say, well, this is what I believe. And so what I believe is true, and it's my reality, and then they're mad if the other person doesn't have the same thing, so people can't even talk to each other anymore. You know, it, it, it's a um, an interesting note, but it relates to the political stuff. I was out to uh, lunch yesterday with a friend of mine. She's Chinese. She here, she's here in Arizona getting a master's degree in, in business at the Thunderbird School, uh, which is a great school for, for business. And we were talking about this whole thing about communication. And she said, you know, in, in China, uh, people talk to each other. People have different points of view. They disagree, but they talk. You know, they say what they really feel, and they don't hate each other. They don't get angry. They, they talk, and here we don't so much. You know, if you're on two sides of the aisle, uh, it's been very hard for people to have civil conversations with each other. They get polarized. And so there's an uh, issue about, you know, it's in our 
Constitution, we have the right for free speech. But it says nothing about the responsibility that comes with that. You know, people just say, well, I've already said whatever I want. Well, sure you do by, you know, our culture. But where's the responsibility that you have for what you choose to say? Words have impact. Words are vibrations. Words create reality. Words have consequences. And so if you throw out a bunch of garbage, it's not like, well, I'm just expressing, you know, my right. You know, you're doing damage. You know, you're doing damage to our culture. You're doing damage to our environment. And you're doing damage to everybody around you by spelling out your negativity. And so, you know, it's, it's lack of uh, effort. And, you know, I think people, our society is evolving. You know, it's like a spiral. It's going up where more people continue to wake up in spite of how bad things go. And, you know, sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. I kind of thought maybe we'd hit rock bottom, but I was wrong, you know. Trump has taken us to a, a new low, which the flip side is he's mobilized a lot of people into action. And so the good news is that you know, people can't stand it anymore. You know, and so they're getting out. You know, uh, women went out and marched. You know, I have friends who were there in Washington uh, for the march. You know, people are speaking up more, mobilizing. Uh, those are good things. I don't know if that helps, Sherry, but that's kind of what comes to mind. In one of my books, I wrote that success comes from experience, but experience comes from making mistakes. And the way that we look at mistakes in society now, we don't like them, we don't allow them. We miss that component of we learn from them. How can we turn that around? Well, again, I mean, it's another great point. I mean, I agree with you. You know, you cannot be successful without making mistakes. That's how you learn. And you turn it around by having an enlightened view that says you have to make mistakes. And unfortunately, at the very top, you know, what do we have? Someone who never apologizes for anything and never says it's wrong, right? I mean, he never makes mistakes. Well, how idiotic is that? Everybody makes mistakes. If you don't make mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. You know, you're not going to the edge. I mean, one of the books that I wrote was with Coach Joe Taylor. He's a uh, four-time Hall of Famer in the college football world. And one of his examples on the same subject, he says, you know, do you know where the name for 409 came from, that cleaning product? He says, it took him 409 attempts to get it right. And on the 409th one, they wow. got the formula right, and there was the product. You know, you look at um, Edison. He had hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, mistakes, you know, leading to the creation of the light bulb. Everybody makes mistakes. There's a great story that uh, I heard at um, the Self-Realization Fellowship, and the story was this guy is working for IBM. It's true stories, by the way. Guy's working for IBM, and he makes this huge mistake on whatever project he was doing, cost the company uh, $3 million. So the president calls him in, and he figures, I'm getting fired. So he goes in, and he says, yeah, I understand if you want to fire me. And the president says to him, he says, are you kidding me? We just invested $3 million into your learning. Why would we want to fire you? So it's your uh, belief system, and that has to become part of our culture again, as opposed to this, uh, idiotic, uh, infantile view that I'm always right, I'm never wrong. And see, the problem with people like that is that in order for them never to be wrong, they have to make everybody else out to be wrong. So there's this denial, this projection. You're talking about the, about the most infantile of defense mechanisms that only create problems. They don't solve problems. And the thing that just gets me, probably because I'm a psychologist, right, and I lived in this world for so long, I watch uh, people like Donald Trump, he's certainly not the only one, right, come from this uh, power kind of mode where they deny things, they take no responsibility and blame everybody else, and people don't see it. You know, the, the average American, they, they don't see it for what it is. You know, it, it's just a basic attempt to protect a very fragile ego 
who cannot stand to feel um, lessened in any, any kind of way. So, Sherry, I think that the biggest thing is education. You have to kind of reinvent the reality that making mistakes is normal. I mean, if you have a child and you're a parent, and every time uh, your kid makes a mistake, you yell at them, what is that kid going to be like when they grow up? It's not going to be pretty, I can tell you that. I mean, you basically, you sit down, you talk, say, okay, so what did you learn? You know, what happened? Let's take a look at it. So hopefully you don't make the mistake again and you learn from it. Uh-huh. So people have to embrace that uh, point of view about their life. It certainly makes them more forgiving and more loving, not only of themselves, but the people around them. I think I wanna... another issue, oh, one more comment, no, Richard, sure. but I'll butt that all of our heroes are one of a kind, but people want to fit in and be like everyone else. So to be different is okay. Well, different. Statement or a question, you know, that, that being different, you're saying diversity is good, right? Well, diversity is good. That's one of the things that makes America great. We used to, although. Uh, current politics seem to want to kill that, that diversity, uh, America is one of the most uh, interesting experiments because can, people can come from anywhere in the world and become part of our culture and contribute. And I had the good fortune once to meet a, a young doctor from, uh, I think he's from Vietnam, and he was developing a whole new company. And he said, you know, when I came here, my family was so poor. And he looks at me and says, only in America could this happen to me or I would have this opportunity. Yeah. So if we embrace diversity, uh, different points of view, we learn stuff. We open up the, the field for more ideas, different points of view, better things happen. If you make everything the same and monolithic and... Uh, the same people, the same mindset, you get a very limited uh, perspective, and the best solutions don't show up. I want to I want to move slightly. I'm I'm stunned to find that we're we're not there, but we're closing in on the end of our hour. Is that goes fast? I want to talk about. I, there's so many things I want to talk about, but I I think I want us to move toward talking about emotional intelligence. One of your principles is. Emotional intelligence will determine how effectively you can react and respond in highly stressful circumstances. I'm feeling fairly I'm stressed. You're, yeah, say you're feeling fairly stressed? Yes. I don't mean in this moment. About, I mean in the gestalt. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, science is verboten. We have zero science now. You know, it's just some idiot with a dartboard going, let's do that. Or, you know, I don't know what it is. So that's that's one of my stressors. All right. Well, there, there's two parts to this. The, the, the book starts with spirituality and says it's the foundation for everything. Because, one, you have to have the philosophical uh, and hopefully the direct experience, which you know you have, is that th- there's a bigger show going on here. There's a, a larger intelligence and consciousness helping to direct things. And you really have to trust that. You have to trust that no matter how bad it looks, you know, if everybody just keeps doing the best they can, this will unfold and evolve into some uh, higher order and things will resolve. So that's one thing. It's, it's your belief, and hopefully that belief comes out of experience, that you've touched that presence and have felt the comfort and felt the wisdom in that and realized that that is always there. So then you bring that and to the whole thing of emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence is, you know, how do you integrate yourself? So uh, one thing that might relate to saying, well, I'm feeling really stressed, we talk about there's certain factors in that. The awareness of your feelings, and we've talked about that. The ability to express your feelings, the ability to contain your feelings, the ability to organize your feelings, the ability to resolve your feelings. So if we're talking about being in reaction to what we see in the world today, 
to be able to contain feelings and resolve feelings, those would be two elements of emotional intelligence. So you contain the feelings, and that comes from having a, a strong sense of self and in a psychological world, we call that ego structure. Not the ego that we talk about spiritually, but I've got a big ego. It just means he's full of himself. Ego from a psychological thing is really your capacity to function. What are your strengths? And these are some of them. So if you can contain your feelings, they just don't overwhelm you. I mean, we've all seen people who they start to feel anxious and they have an anxiety attack. Or they, they go into a reaction and they get angry and then they're in a rage. There's no ability there to contain feeling. And that's partly what we teach kids as they're growing up. You know, you can have a feeling, but you don't have to let it just uh, explode. You learn how to keep it within you. So meditative practice is a tool because it will neutralize feelings. You know, as you know, you sit in meditation and you can have anxiety, anger, whatever. And as you uh, do the techniques and shift consciousness, everything quiets down because your energy is rising above your emotional fields going into a higher level of consciousness that is not controlled and orchestrated by your emotions so that there are techniques to achieve these things. So if you uh, are feeling you know, particularly anxious and you have a certain kind of philosophy and you sit down, take a few minutes, go into a meditative place, all of a sudden your feelings are not so overwhelming. You become bigger than your feelings. And then uh, it's easier to resolve them when you're not being controlled by them and overwhelmed by them. In, in that state where there's a little bit of distance between you and the feelings, it's easier to see things. You, know, you can see uh, solutions or alternatives or possibilities for what to do. So it's a, um, it's a process. And unfortunately, once again, we see at the top uh, someone who shows very little ability for that emotional intelligence, and, and we see the price it takes. I mean, uh, twitting, you know, whatever comes in your heart and putting out whatever garbage you want is not a good example of emotional intelligence. You know, it's impulsive, uh, it's destructive, and uh, it ends up creating a lot of reactions. And my, um, I guess, request and hope for our listeners is that you learn how to stop reacting to all the craziness that's going on in the world. Just because somebody says something, you don't have to react to it. You don't have to do anything necessarily in response to it. Somebody's treats ought to be ignored. You know, if he wasn't the president, people wouldn't even listen to this stuff. But he is. So, you know, he gets a lot of that, and the media likes that stuff too, which is another, another issue. But... Well, and I think it—I think it would be tremendously powerful. I didn't mean to go this direction. Uh, I'll just comment that I think that if he was ignored on Twitter, that it would stop because he—he didn't—he is the poster child for. It doesn't make any difference if it's wrong or right or good or bad. It's about the attention. That's all it is, exactly. at, at least from my view. I mean, yes, he's saying stupid things and he's saying inappropriate things, but it isn't anything about that. It's about, oh, my God, look at how many responses I got or how much reaction or how they're talking about it on the news or how it's it's all about the attention. If the attention stopped, it would probably melt away because there's no his, the goal seems to be attention. That's my well, view. also too, Rachel Maddow said something uh, I think it was last night that I heard about says, you know, his style is distraction through disaster, right? So, you know, if he can create enough of these things that people then get distracted by, people don't look at the real issues. And so if you stop allowing yourself to be distracted by things that are not important, you can stay focused on the things that do matter and effectively engage and do whatever you can do to help make the world a better place. I like that theory. <laughs> I, I know we only have about two minutes, but I, re I, I want you to say as short something as possible about the uh, principle number six. A depth of heart will give you the drive, determination, and inspiration to persevere. 
because I think perseverance is really, I really want people to change the word resist into persist. So I think that number mm-hmm. six is really important. Well, heart is great because we're really talking about uh, devotion and motivation and inspiration. That, that's kind of what generates heart. You have to love what you do. If you don't love what you do, you're really not going to want to do it. And, you know, maybe you do it because you're going to make some money or you feel like you have to do it for this or that. But even in the sound of my voice, you're bored, you kind of resent it, you resist it. There's not a great enthusiasm. And it's easier to persevere. And it's one of the truths about life. You have to persevere. If you don't persevere, you're not going to be successful. Everybody has setbacks. You know, perseverance leads to success. If you have that heart where you feel inspired and you have this love for what you're doing and what you're wanting to accomplish, you'll have the energy to keep going. Okay. We have to stop. I have other quest- so many other questions. <laughs> <laughs> I really and one of the things I really want people to take away from this show is the what we talked about early on. Uh actually there's a quote that uh, I'm not sure where I got this. I think it was some of, in some of the PR material or something you wrote that this book is not about sports. This is a book about life, surviving in a world of chaos and confusion, fear and doubt. We almost find a way of maintaining our sanity and peace of mind. And I think that's really the big takeaway for me is that when I first got the book, I thought sports there, sports heroes or sports, you know, people, it's not, it's not my world. I'm not opposed. It's just not my world. I haven't paid attention, but it's so, these principles are so powerful in this time of chaos and madness. Those are my words. Um, I just think it's a, it's a, you know, it's a great, like, just take it and read the summaries at the back. I'd hate to say the cheat, but I mean, it's really, it's a great guidebook. I'm really happy. Well, I appreciate that. And I hope people do get it. And I hope women buy it and give it to men in their life because the men might not buy the book because it is kind of a self-help book in a certain kind of way, but they'll like it because of the stories from the sports world. Right. Buy it for your husband, buy it for your sons. It's a great education to help them prepare for life. Okay. Yeah. Give it to the CEO of Uber. <laughs> That's a personal <laughs> comment. Exactly. Um, all right. uh, so now, do you still work with clients one-on-one? Uh, rarely, but if somebody calls me, I will, you know, okay. if it looks like okay. a, a good fit. So people can contact me. Uh, I do a little bit uh, of that. You know, I'm more retired than not. I've actually been doing some website designing in the last couple of years, helping people develop businesses so I do their websites, but we talk about their business and I do kind of like executive coaching with the people to help them uh, grow into the role of what they want to do for their business while we're designing the, the website. But, you know, doing coaching for me is easier than doing the website design. Uh, so I would love mm-hmm. it. You know, if people want to contact me, I'd be happy to, to work with people. I can do it through telephone, Skype. Uh, there's other more secure video things that we can use too, or in person if they're in Arizona. Okay. And where would you pe- like people? Where do people find out information about that? And where would you like people to find your book? Uh, the book is on Amazon.com. Uh, it's the easiest place to get it. Just go there and do the search for "Bouncing Back 2017 in Crisis," and it'll show up. It's in uh, paperback, is in Kindle, and pretty soon. Uh, it will be out in an audio book. It's already produced. I'm just waiting for it to get uh, finally finished in production. So a couple of weeks, that should be out as audiobook too. And my website, ronman.com, R-O-N-M-A-N-N.com, uh, is more focused around all this individual development kind of stuff. So people can find me there. They can just email me directly at M-A-N-N-R, man-R, at ronman.com, R-O-N-M-A-N-N. Or if they want to call me, uh, welcome to call me at uh, 602-601-2062. 
Great. Thank you so much. I'll be calling you after the show. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was really great. Uh, thank you so much, Ron. I knew it was going to be a great show. And I, and as I said, when I first got the book, I thought, sports? Really? But it's so much more. Um, I think it's a great – I've always believed in, in uh, what I phrase as corruption from within, meaning this seems like the per- a great vehicle – as you say, there are guys that I know that I could give this book and they would read it because it's about sports, but really it's giving them such a great other amount of information that you you slipped in so nicely. It's so well done. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoy being on your show and talking with two of you very uh, smart, uh, aware people and uh, some of the best interviews I've ever had with the two of you. Thank you very much. All right, everybody, have a great rest of the week. 